Welcome to the Modern Intimacy Podcast, a show about mental health, sex, relationships, education, how-tos, and those private things we need to talk about more publicly with no restrictions. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri. As a licensed psychologist, certified sex therapist, and certified sex addiction therapist, I know that mental health is directly tied to the quality of our relationships and our sex lives. I am passionate in my desire to smash stigmas about both and shine a light on relationship and societal issues that may be negatively affecting us. During this podcast, I will also give you practical answers and insights to questions you're asking about or have been hoping to solve. We should all have fulfilled, happy lives, erasing shame and stigmas and building healthy connections. Let's do that by getting curious together. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Modern Intimacy Podcast. I'm so glad you're listening today. Uh, Today's question is really interesting, and it's actually one that has come up a lot uh, for me personally and for a lot of my friends. And our question is from a woman named Meg who writes in that recently, she said, recently, I have been told by a man I went on a date with that I'm undateable because I'm too successful And he told me I should slow down or no one's going to ever date me again. Ouch, that's a really hard question to hear and completely not true. But I do think that there's something really curious to unpack here in this question of women and their ambitions and how it affects them in their dating lives. So today I invited Stephanie O'Connell Rodriguez to come and speak with us Stephanie has amazing content on TikTok and Instagram. She's a writer in New York City who covers the topics of ambition, money, and power, and often talks about gender dynamics in the mix. So Stephanie, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I think this is a really important and under-discussed conversation, and I really, really feel for your questioner, and I want her to at least know that I've heard the same question a million times, so she's not alone. Right. I think that women who are really um, ambitious and motivated in their lives, whether it's in work or in other aspects of, of what they do in life, frequently get that message from men to slow down they're getting too big, it will overthrow the balance of love in their relationship. Mm. And I'm so curious, when you hear that question from women, or when you hear that feedback that women get, where where do you go with it right away in your head? So many thoughts come into my mind when I hear this. One is anger that they have been made to feel this way. And that for some reason, this idea that ambition and the rest of your life is not compatible seems to be something that's only applied to women. My issue is not what the balance of work and ambition and love and family and everything else in your life should be. Like, I think for each person, it's a different mix and a different cocktail. My issue is the fact that women are not allowed to integrate those things without enormous judgments and constraints in the way men have been able to do for centuries. I mean, yes, everything that you just said, a thousand percent yes. You actually coined the term the ambition penalty. So can you break down what that means as it relates to this idea? Yeah. So I think if you're somebody like me who really grew up in the movement of girl power and being told that you could be anything you wanted to be, like I I was the the daughter of the 
people who basically created the feminist movement, right? And so there was so much of that ethos, I think, for a lot of women who are coming into their midlife and mid-careers now of just anything is possible and be ambitious and you will be rewarded for it. And now to be in midlife or for some people who might be listening even earlier in their careers, it's a very disheartening experience to find that that ambition that was championed your whole life is now something that's being penalized, is now something that you're being told makes you too much, is now being something that is that people are telling you makes you undateable, that is a kind of backlash and stigmatization that is extremely gendered. Uh, it's very specific to women because ambition and boys and men, it's praised, it's celebrated, it's nurtured. And women are seeing the backlash at work. When they ask for more, they're more likely to be told that they're unlikable or that they're pushy. They're more likely to be denied raises because who is she to think that she deserves this, even though we've been told asking is the only way to get what we want. And in relationships, it's uh, who are you to make more than me? And uh, this really upsets the balance of power in our relationship in a way that makes me feel like y- you don't really need me. And yeah, maybe I don't need you, but that doesn't, you know, a, a relationship predicated on need as opposed to choice, I'm not sure is the healthiest place to start. So. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> and <laughs> it's it's really fascinating to start to break down some of these unconscious scripts that people inherit from previous generations and from cultural expectations. And of course, all of the ways that gender is conditioned into us, whether we like it or not. Um, what I find so maddening about the framing of this statement or question is that it always sounds to me like an accusation at the woman as if she's trying to do something that she's just not supposed to do. Mm. And then she's blamed for that ripple effect and that the framing of these complaints or, or observations that many men make to women is that they're the problem. And it just reflects a lack of insight into and a lack of accountability into their own emotional process and experience, right? I think often about the difference between hearing language like you're intimidating versus I'm intimidated. And and that is the framing in this question that really gets under my skin with a fervor because women internalize that shame and it's another insidious form of, I'll call it victim blaming Mm -hmm. um, and shaming that women hold on to and have to be in a a constant struggle around uh, deciding if they align with their motivations and their passions in this world and their competence um, or do they preserve relationships with people who believe they need to stay small in order to be worthy of love or connection or uh, survival and work. Yeah, this this positioning of women as the problem is a tale as old as time. (laughs) And we have been bending ourselves into pretzels to figure out how to be everything to everyone with the exact right mix of ambition and niceness and leadership and submission. And 
what I think I have come to and a lot of what this idea of ambition penalty is really about is that every woman I speak to is mindful of these things, conscious of these things, constantly thinking about these things. And it's time that instead of keeping our focus and telling women what they need to do differently, it's time that we rethink the way we're treating women, that we're stigmatizing them or judging them, and how can we better support them? And I think part of this is bigger than some like individual relationship dynamics or dudes versus ladies. It's not that. It's these broader cultural expectations that say men should be XYZ, financial provider, head of household, leadership, decision maker, and women should be, and I'm using quotes here for anybody listening, that they should be submissive and they should be nurturing above all else and uh, they should be caretakers above all else and not a leader. And I think those ideas are fine, but I think they shouldn't be gendered. And I think we should all be all of these things. And what happens when somebody is in an experience where they might be a man and they're not making as much money as their partner, they might feel insecure because the world tells them that they are not measuring up. So I think that their insecurity might be coming from a legitimate place. What's not okay is internalizing that and then put projecting that onto a partner. What needs to happen is for us to recognize that I'm feeling insecure because the world tells me that to be a masculine man, I need to be in charge and out earn my partner. And instead of telling my partner that or feeling that, well, can I reflect on that and see if that's actually true? No. Is it useful? No. Is it helping my relationship? No. Okay. So what will? And you know, you're the expert on this stuff, but I think you know these broader cultural dynamics is what we really need to focus on, not just this dude or this girl. I couldn't agree with you more. And I do have a lot of empathy for what it's like to be a man right now when women for the last several decades have been pushing through a lot of the limitations placed on them by gender and saying, I want a bigger and more holistic experience of what it means to be a human. So I can be a mother, I can be nurturing, I can be a boss at work, I can uh, do these hard jobs that require physical labor, I can crack code and write Uh, new software programs. I mean, women have really said, I want to taste every part of the pie. Thank you very much. And I think that in that, they have found um, a capture of worthiness that isn't contingent so much on these rigid gender roles. And what I see with men often is the men who haven't found worthiness outside of their relationship with masculinity tend to hold on to these rigid stereotypes with a lot more um, hesitance to let go. It's scary to try to define worth your worth in other ways. But the thing is, these gender roles have set up a bit of a false need to create worth outside of them because we are all inherently worthy just because we exist, right? But these gender expectations for men about being providers and making so much money as being inherently worthy of love or partnership really, I think, um, discombobulate men's ability to think about themselves 
as people worthy of love in other ways, at least for the men who really adhere to that. And that's a hard place to be. I saw a study um, talking about how when you have financially contingent Mm self-worth, then you are more likely to have a lot of relationship stress and dissatisfaction. And I was like, ah, given everything I know about what happens when women out-earn men in relationships, this seems to make a lot of sense. That tracks. It does. It does. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, I've seen some research. I know you've talked about research that really highlights that when men, or excuse me, when women make the majority of the household income, dynamics in their relationship change. So what have you read? What have you observed in your research around this? So what's really interesting is that there's a lot of data that show as women contribute financially to the household and they're in the workplace and they're doing well, it really improves the relationship, really improves relationship outcomes, more money coming into the household can really reduce stress for everybody. It's a net positive for all partners. What the tipping point is, is when women begin to out earn their partners. And that's where you start to see a lot of really problematic outcomes from higher rates of infidelity that their male partners are likely to engage in to higher rates of divorce. And of course, every time I say that, people just assume, ah, well, you know, women don't want to be married anymore or date men anymore who make less than them. And so that's why the relationship falls apart. And According to all the rest of this data, which is that men are more likely to cheat, they're more likely to engage in physical and emotional abuse toward their female partners when she makes more, and they are um, also less likely to engage in household labor, unpaid labor. So uh, female breadwinners wind up compensating by doing even more of the household labor from cleaning and cooking and childcare. And to me, what that says is like when women begin to earn more, they are put in an untenable situation at home to the point that there is so much relationship stress that they are trying to assert their femininity and not be accused of emasculating their partners that they've completely run themselves ragged. They have no more bandwidth. They have no room for self. And that is what creates this deterioration in relationship outcomes, not this idea that you know women are just completely and suddenly uninterested in their partners when they earn more money. Right. I, I so appreciate you highlighting that reductionistic conclusion that and erroneous conclusion that I hear frequently brought up as well, because the reality is that many women uh, are the ones who petition for divorce. I think it's something like 70% of divorces are petitioned by women. And mm-hmm. um, for those women who are college educated, it's 80% actually. Um, so there is often, again, a blaming of women for having higher standards, but a misattribution uh, about what those standards actually are, because most of the women who I've spoken with don't really care that their partners make less money, but they do care that their partner withdraws from the relationship or begins to exhibit petulance or passive aggression at home. And sometimes to your point, 
um, really degrading behavior and treatment in the form of emotional abuse or domestic violence, physical abuse, um, sometimes even financial abuse. There is an entitlement that some men exhibit in those situations to the financial income that their partners bring in. And all of it seems to be this unconscious dance of anger and apology that happens between male and female partners in this dynamic. Um, and it's really it's really exhausting for both of them and really important to recognize the way that that can lead to such fatigue and exhaustion and burnout. I would say more so for the female partners because there is this compensatory expectation that they are diving into, which is likely a cultural fawn response in many ways. Mm-hmm. These ideas of what I've noticed come up again and again in everything I cover, including this dynamic, is it's this idea of gender roles and how it intersects with how somebody's gender identity is perceived that seems to be at the root of it everything that can create conflict. And so like my whole thing is, what? where do we come up with these ideas of what's masculine and what's feminine? And when you look back at the history, those ideas are really fluid. What is masculine has been changed all the time. What is feminine has changed all the time. So these are cultural ideas. There's nothing... there's not a lot of these things that are, are super inherent. You know, gender differences are rather minimal. But what is what you do see differences arise is like responses to the way genders are treated differently. So when you see a different a, a market or significant difference in behavior, I think the question then needs to be, well, what is the input that this group is disproportionately experiencing that creates this really different kind of outcome or this really different kind of behavior? Because there's a lot of different kinds of responses to different things within genders. And that differentiation, I think, is greater than what you see necessarily like as a group between genders. But because we're so hooked on these like rigid and binary ideas of gender identity, we wind up reinforcing what's really just like totally unnecessary cultural stereotypes and biases again and again and again. And they're so arbitrary. They're so arbitrary. Totally. Yeah. There are some interesting books out there. One is called uh, Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. And I'm not (laughs) going to get into the politics of socialism. That's not what this podcast is about. But the premise of the book talks about how when there is an egalitarian um, agreement in relationships and there aren't these rigid uh, mandates about how gender should be identified with, expressed, or um, performed, those partners show up with more quality and more commitment to justice and fairness. And what ends up happening is there's a lot less resentment in relationships that are long-term and a lot more equity that shows up in the form of time to spend in the space of what is erotic together and on their own. And it's a really, uh, probably not a rocket science idea for most folks to think about. And yet it seems to be really difficult to put that concept of equality and parity into practice in a lot of relationships, because I think so much of these expectations are really unconscious because a lot of the men that I speak with are really shifting 
And they'll say things like, my partner makes a lot more money than I do. And I love that for her. And it's great for me. And I want to be a stay-at-home dad. But where there is a gap is sort of what does it mean to take on some of that mental load and the domestic labor and the emotional labor that someone has to take up, right? If if another person's um, main focus is their career. And when you have two folks who are career-driven, then really dividing up all of those uh, tasks together is even more important. But I think a lot of men just haven't yet begun that exploration of how unconsciously their relationship with masculinity has set a pace for their expectations of their partner and of themselves and lives in their lives and their relationship. I'm curious your thoughts on that. I think you make such a great point. And this is why I think this work that I've been doing around ambition penalty and really breaking down some of these concepts that sometimes feel like you kind of feel it, but you don't name it, uh, is really resonating with people because there are these roadblocks to equity that are obvious. And when you look at things that are obvious, it's really easy to think, well, everything's fair. Everything's equal. You know, there's, you're not restricted from doing this. You're not restricted from doing that. But a lot of where the constraints lie are in these kinds of invisible barriers, biases, disproportionate mental load, as you just mentioned. And so I think this experience of being able to articulate and to name and to point and show and begin the dialogue is a critical place to start. One of the other pieces of pushback. I get a lot of different pieces of pushback, as you can imagine, speaking about, you know, feminism on the internet. But another really common thread is this idea that like, well, why are you talking about this? Like, what's the solution? You're just complaining. And I vehemently disagree with that perspective. So much of where these problems lie, as we just talked about, is culture. It's culture and belief systems. And so much of what I see come up is a result of misconceptions and these ideas of cultural beliefs that are not borne out in people's experiences, realities, or in the scientific data. And so if we can start to develop a language for calling out those false assumptions, if we can start to name the experiences we're having and point out how these barriers are still in place in, as you just mentioned in your example, the concept of mental load, that is a, a relatively new word. And the fact that women are disproportionately shouldering all of that labor of, you know, keeping track of the family schedules and executing on the plans and following up with everybody, that does stand in the way of being able to share these responsibilities more equitably, not to mention, you know, beyond relationships at work, relationship with self. Like, as long as there is this hugely disproportionate division of labor within the household, it crowds out space for anything women want to have for themselves. So true. So true. And it creates such um, such a divide in the connection that partners have. Yeah. And it's really painful for both of them because without the language 
and the context to really understand why they're sitting with resentment for one another or why it's difficult to communicate their needs. It's so hard to find resolution and they end up polarizing further and further into opposite sides of their relationship, their home and and their existence with one another. I just following up on on that, I think you you kind of get into resentment and blame without understanding. My my relationship to the things I talk about and mostly I'm talking about gender equity or you know equity across any metric but my approach is about curiosity and not saying you are doing this to me but rather saying why is this happening i know it's not i know anything that's happening is beyond an individual dynamic i understand it as something that's broader cultural societal happening at many many levels happening within me too and how i'm responding and the biases i'm carrying so my one of my biggest takeaways for anyone who's kind of dealing with maybe feelings of anger or frustration or confusion is to be curious because I think curiosity gives you a lot of space and grace. And I think it's a way to have that conversation with your partner too, to let them have curiosity so they don't fall into defensiveness. I couldn't agree with you more. Being curious, in my opinion, is probably one of the greatest virtues a person can have because Mm -hmm. curiosity allows us to pause. It allows us to not personalize. It allows us to regulate. It allows us to connect first and, and then share information. When we're coming from that place, it's, it's a joining process as opposed to a dividing process, which is what happens when we feel really angry or defensive. We just sort of siphon off into our own experience and only take care of ourselves emotionally. So curiosity really is, I think, such a great starting point in trying to find a new normal together. Um, When you talk to men about this, I'm really curious about what you hear in terms of how they express backlash or what their biggest fears are in in really foraging a path of equity. I get two camps. (laughs) So I get people who are hearing what I'm saying, but aren't sure how to move forward. And I think that's where this conversation around curiosity and awareness and naming and language is really, really helpful. And I also think like we can't expect any one person to do this in isolation because these aren't things that happen in isolation. These are relationship dynamics and not just in the context of a relationship in the home, but, you know, our relationships more broadly, you know, these dynamics can play out in any kind of relationship. So bringing curiosity, openness, and allowing ourselves some space and grace to be heard, to be wrong, to be, I don't know, off the mark. I think I am seeing some men lean into that. And that is really, really encouraging. I'm married, by the way. You know, I think some people see me online and they're like, oh my gosh, this woman hates men. I don't. (laughs) I really don't. My issue is with the system, right? A system that incentivizes uh, men and women to behave in these incredibly restricted ways and rewards men for only certain things and punishes them for everything else and rewards women for only certain things and punishes them 
them for everything else. That is the framework behind everything I speak about, not men versus women. That said, there are many men who come up into my videos and have no good faith that they're bringing into the comments, as I'm sure you have had experience with. They're just there to vent, to be angry. Um, and I'm a pretty compassionate person, but when it comes to what I've noticed just kind of play out in terms of the patterns on the internet comments is that these, these people aren't even trying to engage. They have no interest. Their only interest is to incite a response and to provoke and not in a way to, to introspect or not in a way to even engage in a real dialogue. I don't mind criticism as long as it's in good faith, but these people aren't doing that. And so that, that's what I've been kind of seeing this strand of, not just in my comments, but online more broadly. And that's one of the things I have my eye on that I'm a little bit worried about in terms of like this model of masculinity that really sees the world as zero sum and sees what happens for women as somehow taking away from men. I think that framework for viewing the world that someone else's success has to come at my expense as opposed to a world that is, you know, where people succeed together and grow together in partnership. That's the world that I'm worried about. I really hear that and, and echo those concerns. It's, it's as if there's um, a really dire sense of scarcity around mm. who can have worthiness and who can have power. And so my experience of, of the, the kinds of men and, and sometimes women who come into comment sections to very quickly, and I love how you phrase this, without good faith, um, just try to shut down the conversation. I see it as sort of another example of, yet again, the entitlement to emotional regulation that is put into the laps of women um, and an example of that emotional labor that there is an expectation that women should do and shoulder. I can't tell you how many times I get comments in my video section about things like you're going to die alone with cats or, oh, look, a feminist, as if that's a bad thing. Right. <laughs> right? But I really sort of see those kinds of reactions as um, young and very scared, uh, young developmentally, maybe not chronologically in someone's age, but really young. And it, there, there's an absence of um, understanding of even how to sort of cope with the big feelings that come up around these topics that are not simple topics, right? And so there is not a simple answer and they do require a lot of dialogue and conversation and expansive thought around to find resolution in a way that's inclusive of people of all genders. Yeah. The, Thing that really kept me off of social media for my work for a really long time was that I love nuance, <laughs> as I can tell you do too. Yes. And I like things that are sticky and complex and confusing and that there aren't simple answers for because that is my experience of the world. And I think it's an I think it's a more honest way to talk about anything. But it's not, you know. Honestly, 90 second videos, which is an Instagram reel cut off for everyone who's like, why didn't you talk about this in the rest of your videos? 
<laughs> it, it's tough. It's really tough. Also, beyond the world of the internet, like people like simple things. They like catchphrases. They like a, a simple thing that you can just glom onto. They love certainty, right? And I get it. Like I want to feel certainty too in the world, but I don't. And I'm I have like come to accept uncertainty as something that I can really live with and I relish. And I think that's what's really enabled me to have that approach of curiosity as opposed to being so certain that I immediately flip to defensiveness or uh, accusation or blame. So I think, um, yeah, I just wanted to echo what you were saying. I don't remember where I started with that thread, but <laughs> I know I was like, yes, and. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, I, I think we, we got there talking about the reactions on social media to yeah. some of the content that you put out. I, I also want to also echo your point about women coming up in the comments sometimes uh, too. Both men and women, like basically anybody across any gender identity can hold water for patriarchy, right? Again, understanding these not as men versus women, but rather, you know, these ideas of what a man should be versus what a woman should be. And are you performing it correctly, quote unquote, and if you're not attacking you for it, like that's patriarchy and men and women alike can perpetrate it. Absolutely. And I, I really, I love what you just said. And it, it reminds me of the over coupling of the performance of gender mm. with morality, right? Mm. Are you a good and moral person? And if, and if you don't perform your gender expectations in these ways, then you're not. And that for me is a really dangerous space to live in because one, it's incredibly self-righteous yeah. um, and assumptive that that worldview is the only worldview to live in. But it also is really limiting for the people who maintain those beliefs mm. and that position in the world. And I often feel like, you know, this is obviously my worldview, right? We can have a more um, inclusive experience of what it means to be a human. And what I mean by that is we can do lots of things, whether they are active or passive, whether they are assertive or receptive. And, and I sort of think about the masculine and the feminine polarity in those ways is something active or passive. And, um, we all have those traits, right? We have to be passive to sit in a chair or to go to sleep. So there's passivity that is demonstrated regardless of gender all the time. Mm -hmm. There's activity demonstrated all the time. When you stand up and walk to the kitchen to get water, guess what? That could be considered masculine energy because you're moving towards something. And the the whole, I guess, understanding of of morality and worthiness has to be uncoupled from power, or I should say examined within the context of power that these hierarchical mandates around gender, gender seem to um, expect of folks. One of the things that I've been kind of grappling with is um, you were, what you were talking about just made me think this, but I've been grappling with how, you know, choice feminism has kind of been weaponized to really promote a lot of these almost like 1950s housewife aesthetics on social media recently. You see a lot of um, stay-at-home wife trends. And there is a point that they're making that like, you know, 
I have the option to choose these things. Um, not that, but first and foremost, like not all choices are inherently feminist. Like it might be the right choice for you. It just doesn't make it a feminist choice. Um, but I would say the thing that really scares me about these trends is that they really seem predicated on undiversifying sources of um, recognition, inclusion, like social network, financial resources. Basically, what it's doing is making women be completely reliant on a male partner for all of their needs. And male partners get to have diverse sources of all of their needs. And I think of it because I have a financial background. So I think of it like investing. Like if I put all of my money into one stock, that would be a really bad idea. And it doesn't matter if it was Apple stock, right? Because Apple stock is a great stock. But if tomorrow the company goes bankrupt, I'm really screwed. So there's a reason we don't do that. And I think this is the way I think about some of the trends that are happening now that is really kind of glamorizing this idea of the stay at home aesthetic. I don't mind if people want to stay at home, they can stay at home. But this idea that that's the right way for a woman to be, as you said, it's moral for a woman to be. I think to not question that, to not question why is it moral for a woman to cut herself off from all her sources of validation and recognition and um, financial remuneration other than her partner, that doesn't seem like a good faith argument to me. I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your wisdom and your perspective. Where can folks reach you if they want to follow your content or see what you're working on? Yeah, my Instagram is at Stephanie O'Connell, Stephanie with an F, not a PH. And um, my newsletter blog is twoambitious.com. Amazing. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Again, I really appreciate this conversation and all of the work that you put out there helping people to have these conversations. Uh, Thank you. All right, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Modern Intimacy Podcast. On Instagram, follow me at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and at The Modern Intimacy. On TikTok, check me out at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and on Twitter at Kate Balistrieri. Everyone has questions about mental health, sex, and relationships. Send yours to me via DM on Instagram or email them to questions at modernintimacy.com and I'll answer some at the end of each episode. Visit the website modernintimacy.com to schedule a consultation with a member of our team or to sign up for our newsletter. Let's meet back here next week. New episodes air every Tuesday. Reminder, this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for mental health services. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.